Don't touch that dial. You're tuned in to the Dread Podcast Network. You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts to the renowned horror director, writer, and producer. Now, here's your host, Mick Garris. From Nice Guy Productions World Headquarters overlooking the glamorous San Fernando Valley, I'm Mick Garris, and this is Postmortem. Hollywood is built on many levels, from penurious do-it-yourself productions all the way up to the billion-dollar blockbusters. There are many levels in between, though those in the middle seem to be fading from view. Budgets are getting higher and lower all the time. Some of the most interesting film careers are among those who built their own slice of the Hollywood pie. They don't get hired to make movies, they find a way to do it themselves. It's a tough business to crack and the world of independent film moves through boom and bust eras more than most. Studios though, flourish, topple and converge somehow, finding a way to monopolize and monetize our creative desires. They are corporate and change leaders regularly and are in a constant state of flux. Though they are few and far between, there are tiny empires built by singular leaders with a passion for media. Roger Corman was one of the first to create a lasting contribution to film history, not just as a producer and director, but as the head of his own mini-studio, New World Pictures, and then later New Horizons. He was in charge of his own creative destiny, not a filmmaker for hire. Perhaps his heir apparent is Charles Band, whose collection of one-man studio empires includes Meta Entertainment, Empire Pictures, and Full Moon Studios. His output since producing his first film in 1975 has been prodigious, to say the least. As the producer of over 350 movies and director of dozens, he has called his own shots. His personal and professional life has been wonderfully and gleefully expressed in his current autobiography, Confessions of a Puppet Master. We'll get to know about Charlie's remarkable life in the cinema after this. Today's episode is brought to you by Dread XP. Experience the next part, or should we say party, of the Dread X Collection universe showcasing the hand-picked talent of 12 up-and-coming indie video game talents from around the world, Dread X Collection 5 delivers the scares in their most intense combo pack yet. Enter a land of broken amusements and haunting television shows in this gripping blend of entertainment-themed horror. Find the Dread X Collection 5 on Steam today. Charlie, welcome. That's a hell of a spiel. That's a, I like the word tiny empire. I've got to use that. Tiny. <laughs> there you go. Well, you've had your own empire, one of which is named such. Yeah, this is true. So you grew up in the movie industry. Your father, Albert Band, was a, a renowned director in his own right, who had done lots and lots of movies and television, including two really terrific movies, uh, Face of Fire and I Bury the Living. But you also grew up in Italy in those circumstances. Tell me about what life was like for young Charlie Band and, and were you brought up in the arts to appreciate the arts or where that fire was kindled? Yeah, very much so. All surrounded by the arts, not just the beauty of growing up in Rome, but you know, my father 
uh, is the son of a well-known artist who uh, started in Paris and um, was involved with Chagall and, and putting together a school in the 30s and uh, I guess early 40s. And uh, luckily, uh, the family, meaning my grandfather, my grandmother, and my dad, an only child, they were on a gig, so to speak, um, in Washington, uh, where my grandfather was hired to do a bust of President Roosevelt. And, you know, this is back when it was three weeks across the ocean. You know, today we're, we're bummed that it's an 18-hour journey. And then they spent a month in the White House where he sat with Roosevelt. They became friendly. I have letters. I have beautiful pictures of the two of them. And somewhere in that month, um, the Nazis invaded Paris. And obviously my, my, my grandfather, grandmother, and dad, future dad, uh, they were not able to return. And uh, because of the friendship with Roosevelt, he made them American citizens and asked, uh, you know, where do you want to locate? Where do you want to live in America? And my dad had his say, even though he was 15, he said it has to be Hollywood because he was enamored of uh, show business and a huge fan of uh, Charlie Chaplin. So, you know, they never went back to their apartment. Imagine, you know, locking up your apartment, having a whole life um, you know, being involved and being a, an artist that was surviving, uh, paying the bills based on your art, which is rare, and then just never going back. I think they went back 30 years later just to visit people, but but they were lucky. Otherwise, they would have been not living. So, you know, the, the, the art sort of runs through the family, starting with my granddad and my father who had made movies. And yeah, I grew up on a movie set, but growing up in Rome, to try to answer your question, I think, was... I was actually aware at the time that it was a miracle. I mean, I look back and I'm even more appreciative of what it was like as a little American kid who barely spoke English, age four, I think four and a half when we went to Europe. And then, you know, we didn't come back to, I, I was 20. And, um, you know, learning the, a second language and speaking it well, all of that was, uh, I was just very, very lucky. Yeah, it was an amazing time, too, because international production was just really kind of gaining steam at that time. And your father was successfully making movies. Uh, but to be growing up on film sets in Rome must have been particularly amazing. Did you realize at the time your life wasn't like most kids' lives? Yeah, I realized that. I, I also had a, the gift of the gab. I was very entrepreneurial and was doing crazy things at a young age and actually making money, which was bizarre. But he made movies in uh, the former Yugoslavia. He made movies in Spain and in Italy. So we traveled a lot in Europe, you know, depending on where the production needed to be shot. And, you know, I, he worked with uh, Steve Reeves on several movies, uh, Mr. Universe back in the day. Uh, and then, you know, wonderful American actors like you know, Robert Ryan and Joseph Cotton and you know, he made spaghetti westerns. He made the epics again, like Hercules movies with Steve Reeves. And I was there and I just loved it. I mean, being on those sets also very different from today. Everything was huge, heavy lifting. You know, Klieg lights had to be lights had to be carried around by two grips. It was, you know, an army of 80 uh, people just kind of, you know, uh, as part of the crew, which, you know, today you can do that with eight. Uh, right. So, you know, all of that. And then everything was bigger than life as far as the sets. So, you know, I mean, if it was a epic or a sword and sandal or whatever they call them, uh, you know, if it was a Hercules movie with Steve Reeves and there were amazing sets and or real locations. Uh, I remember in Yugoslavia, um, he had some deal with whoever the production company was where they're able to use several thousand um, uh, soldiers from the Yugoslavian 
army, because this is way before any CGI, right? This is when if you wanted a thousand people in your shot, you needed a thousand people. I remember cast of thousands being on many posters. And cast of thousands, or at least many hundreds. And yeah. like you had to costume these people as well and feed them. And I mean, just being involved in all that was was really uh, amazing. So what were the things you've said in your book and in interviews and the like, how much inspired you were by comic books and horror movies early in life? What were the ones that really got you excited? Well, as you know, even though my friends were Italian and I spoke fluent, I still speak a fluent Italian. Um, you know, I was still, I, I mean, I, I lived here until I was, I guess, four and a half or five. And, um, you know, you, you, you long for certain American things. We went back as a family maybe once every two years to visit. And I remember when Batman came out, you know, I, whenever that was, I was a little kid. I just, I was already reading comics. So the idea of Batman on TV was, uh, yeah. I just, I mean, I had, I think we stayed longer just to catch that, that first uh, series premiere. But um no, I, 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 it was a combination. I mean, first, it was first and foremost music. That has kept me sane for as long back as I can remember. So I was a huge Beatles fan and later on Pink Floyd and, and you know, yeah. music that kind of swept me away. And, you know, I think I've seen probably 11 Pink Floyd concerts dating back to when they performed at Pompeii in the 70s. Oh, you were there. I was wow. there. I, I have seen them. I saw the movie. <laughs> yeah, Adam Hart, Mother, with the full symphony orchestra and a yeah. choir. I mean, onwards and onwards. So, you know, music was a big part of it because music, you know, we could get, you know, albums came out in Italy and the, just the same as they would here. But that was it. There was no TV, really. Uh, people were saying, oh, God, you're like culturally deprived, dude. You don't get to see <laughs> TV or any movies. And there were, and, but I was lucky to see a lot of amazing Italian movies, movies by Pasolini and Antonioni and Fellini. And so I had this kind of rich Italian cinema, an occasional horror film. Once in a while, uh, at one of the revival houses, I would see, you know, an original you know, universal horror movie, which I fell in love with. Uh, but then when I kind of figured out that the comics were kind of neat, because there was only one place in Rome, right on the Via Veneto where the Dolce Vita took place. It was the only newsstand that carried American magazines and comics. I first started reading some of the DC stuff. Then I fell in love with the pre-Marvel monster comics, Fing yeah. Fang Foom and the like, you know, and, and then I kind of understood eventually that, oh, I like Jack Kirby because I, I understood his style of art and Steve Ditko. And then the day or the week, or whenever it was that Fantastic Four came out, which was the first superhero, Marvel book. I, of course, bought one on the stand, fell in love with all of that and, and knew this was way better than the DC stuff because they were like human stories. And then, you know, I was there for the from the very beginning of you know, the first Spider-Man, the first Hulk, Thor. So, yeah, those early Marvel comics were terrific. And I followed uh, Stan Lee a lot and became friendly with him many years later because he, he opened up, you know, as a young fan, he he did the behind the scenes before anybody was thinking of it. I mean, those first few issues, if you read in the very back, buried with really bad ads for cheap crap, there would be Stanley's <laughs> soapbox. And in that soapbox, oh, yeah. he would write and talk about, um, well, talk about the artists and the, the, you know, the Marvel bullpen. And he began to figure out who's writing, who's inking. And it was just a great way to, um, you know, for, for a fan to understand more about, you know, the books. And I did that. I basically yeah, your it. video zone kind yeah. of replicated that experience, right? So in the early 90s, well, I started shooting behind the scenes stuff in the 80s, which I kept, and that was on some of the movies. But 
when I did my deal with Paramount and the first release was Puppet Master, I thought, I've got to, you know, do like Stan Lee's soapbox. I got to let people know, <laughs> you know, not just, and, and, and it's promotion as well. It's what's coming next and interviews with actors and how the effects were done. And I remember arguing with Paramount because at the time it was me and one other fellow from Full Moon. And we sat in this gargantuan conference room with about 12 Paramount execs. And, you know, there was a bit of a discussion as to, um, you know, was it really viable and how are they going to monetize the extra eight cents it cost to have 20 more minutes of tape at the end of the VHS cassette because you'd have to know it was there, which we eventually put little blurbs on the, on the box. And then you had to kind of wind past the end credits to watch this video magazine. But it was very successful. We got tons of mail from fans and you know, I never stopped uh, doing them. Well, you talk about music being such a big uh, part of your life. Uh, your brother, Richard, of course, is a very yes. well-known composer with whom I've yes. worked on more than one occasion. Yes. Yes. Uh, and your son, Alex, is a rock star in the calling, right? Yeah, yeah, that's all true. It's, uh, you know, I think art is saved, art in some form has saved this family going back to my grandfather, because, yeah, I mean, my brother's super talented and has, you know, done so many of the, the more well-known full moon films and franchises like Puppet Master. It's his music and these are very recognizable themes. And then, yeah, my, my eldest son, Alex, at, at the young age of 16, was signed to RCA Records, and they kind of kept him under wraps for a few years. And then at age 19, they released the album. Uh, the group is, was called The Calling, and the album was called Camino Palmero, which was actually the street we all lived on. Right. That became a huge hit. It was number one hit of the decade, that particular song which is called Wherever You Will Go. And, you know, those first few years were amazing. But then like everybody else in that business, there was a burnout factor. CDs weren't selling anymore. You know, the the record business, that's a, a whole extra hour or two of talking yeah. about. Talking well, all, about media, all media seemed to evolve so crucially and differently. Right. You were at the ground floor of the home video surge with right. media entertainment. Right. Right. Um, and you were licensing movies before uh, anybody was doing that, other than the studios doing their own movies. So right. tell me about how that was such a sea change in how people began to consume their entertainment. So, it, okay, so I, I actually made my first movie in 73, and I buried it for 47 years. I was so embarrassed. It was such a... Okay, that was Last Tango in Burbank, right? Well, it was Last Foxtrot in Burbank. Last Foxtrot. It was I'm the sorry, satire. Yeah. And by the way, just ironically, just a couple of days ago, I mean, I also am doing a podcast. Yes, I'm joining your ranks. <laughs> and what's different is mine is um, we're actually shooting it as well. And it's going up on our streaming site. So it's nice. it's a podcast slash vidcast, which I've done kind of forever. So the idea there is to um, talk to a guest. And there are a lot of people who, who kind of are going to be part of this. And um but we shoot it as well. And then, yes, it goes up wherever you get your pods and you can listen to the, the dialogue or the interview. But then the vidcast side afterwards has sort of like a video zone, 20 more minutes of footage, what we're doing, what we're shooting. Ted Nicolau's in you know, Serbia prepping for subspecies. So-and-so's in Cleveland, blah, 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 blah. So it's kind of a serves both masters. And I bring it up because my first guest was John Carpenter. Nice. And John and I go back to literally the last Foxtrot in Burbank because he was starting out. He was shooting Dark Star on weekends in 16 millimeter. And we talked a bit about how we met each other. And he became the editor of Last Foxtrot in Burbank. Which under, you under, don't under the name 
John T. Chance, because he he was smart <laughs> enough even back then not to put his name on it. And you um, didn't put yours on either, though. I think I did. But what happened was the, the movie. OK, so I'll, this is, I'll give you the quickest story ever because it's not a derail because you you have some great questions. But so I I'm back from Italy all but a year. And I invented a business. Um, I had no money. My, my father, kind of the family fell on hard times. He had to come back to the States. The, you know, the great La Dolce Vita for 10 years, 15 years in Italy kind of ran dry because production moved away again. You know, it was great while it was there, but then production ended. So he came back literally on borrowed funds. I started working because I, I can't sit idle at a men's clothing store selling ties and I'm completely colorblind, but somehow it worked because I guess I'm a good salesperson. And in a very short period of time, I won't go uh, to another sidebar, but I invented a gift item business that suddenly became extremely successful. And here I am, 21, 22, with a whole ton of money. I mean, relative to my life and to what was going on. And it was time to make my first movie. And all I wanted to do was make a horror film. And I had a very close friend at the time. He was sort of my guide to Los Angeles. He was 30 years older than me. He was a writer named Frank Ray Pirelli. Frankie used to be, um, he used to perform with Lenny Bruce and he managed Lenny Bruce and he, he was very close to Sally Marr, Lenny's mom. There was this whole burlesque Chicago kind of quasi gangster background. <laughs> he was the most charming, fun, funny guy. And he somehow convinced me, Charlie, wait, you don't have to make a horror movie. Let's make a satire. Let's make the last Foxtrot in Burbank. You'll make a ton of dough. It's going to be great. Very topical. Marlon Brando. Anyway, I, I made the mistake of saying, okay, and we made it. And then of course, how to distribute it. I four-walled movie theaters. I spent even more money to create some kind of, you know, I don't know notoriety for this film. And it was a total disaster. It's a complete 100% <laughs> bust. And I thought that was the end of my career that there's nothing left. I got to run back to Italy. And then luckily this business, this gift item business kept making money. And then I cobbled more together you know, took a breath, and then I made my first official movie, my horror movie, Mansion of the Doom, which was, you know, Richard Basehart and Gloria Graham. And, it's know, a terrific movie. movie. The injury to the eye motif yeah. is very EC Comics. It was, and, and you know, I, that's when I became very close until poor dude passed away. It was Stan Winston, who was my effects guy, who then went on to win endless amount of Academy Awards. It was Lance Hendrickson's first movie. Uh, Andrew Davis was my DP. So, you know, it was quite a beginning. And from that point forward, because I number my movies, I always have, that was number one. And now I'm shooting number 360 or whatever it is. But when Foxtrot Negative was unearthed through the help of Larry Karaszewski, that's yet another story. And we found that the original, even though I threw all the prints away in the material, when I found, when we found the original negative was at UCLA UCLA Film Archives and someone recognized the title. He said, this thing's been here for 47 years. A lot of little labs closed at the time. Someone must've brought in that negative and others. And he said, Charlie, it's been 47 years. No one's ever asked about this movie for 47 (laughs) years, but I I never forgot the title. So I borrowed uh, the negative and made a nice HD master and it's gonna come out soon. Uh, And I couldn't figure out how to number it. So it's it's actually now number zero. There you go. That's <laughs> so Mansion of the Doomed is number one. Last Foxtrot in Burbank is number, number zero. zero. Exactly. So it only took you a year after Mansion of the Doom to be directing your first, officially directing your first movie above ground. Right. And that was Crash. Tell me how, about the, the difference between being a producer and being a director and how your, your life was affected in that way. 
Well, there is a difference, obviously. And, and when I could afford to direct, and you know, which now is almost like going on vacations. I love directing, but I'm also kind of running this circus act. As a matter of fact, my, my podcast is called Charles Band's Full Moon Freak Show. And I wanted <laughs> to call it that because I, I tell people my whole life, if it was 150 years ago, that's what I'd be doing. I'd be traveling the country with some carny act. There'd be the, the tattooed lady and the psychic and the dwarf. And, you know, same difference, except the medium now is, is, is you know, different. But Indeed, you the, have done that, though. I have done that, yes. You've that's gone right. on tour with your live show. Yeah, I've done several hundred cities. That's another story. But anyway, um, I completely fro- forgot the question. There's so well, just the that. difference between moving from producer on Mansion of the oh, Dead yeah. to director on Crash. So... Where it's similar is that, you know, these are all my ideas and concepts. Um, so it's my shop. So I'm very close to the material because it, 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 with few exceptions, it begins with a concept, a piece of art, a title, because without that, we got nothing in our business. And then basically, a, you know, a log line. And then I'll nurture it through screenplay. I'll be involved in casting, obviously bringing people on board, directors and post-production. I've, I've mixed every movie uh, more or less that I've made. So it, I'm close to all these projects. So it's not like somebody else is like taking care of that. And then I kind of peek back and go, oh, that's nice. Three more movies were made. Right. So being close enough to the creative process um, is, is different than you know, even acquiring the rights to, 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 for a book or something. I've never done that. I've never once produced. The only thing that I've made, I guess, that had nothing to do with, you know, my concept would be some of the movie I did with Stuart, which is Lovecraft. So, you know, Reanimator and From Beyond. And then what else? I'm trying to think what else. Not my, Pit in the Pendulum. There's another right, one. Right. But other than that, everything else is sort of for better, for worse, you know, coming out of my brain. But when I get to direct, it's, again, it feels like a vacation. And I've, I've I would have directed more often if I wasn't running this shop. And, you know, there've been really good days and good years and really terrible years, like really bad, like seat of the pants, like hanging on, selling everything just to pay rent and pay payroll. So, you know, when you have that up and down for, in this case, 47, 48 years, you know, um, it's nice when you can step away with enough peace of mind to spend six, eight, 10, 12 days and direct a movie. It's like, oh, (laughs) it's like Christmas. Yeah, well, I mean, you have done something like 75 movies as a director. Yeah, maybe. Something like that. that. Um, But there's an interesting combination of entrepreneur and artist in you that is pretty unique. Corman had it, but he didn't direct nearly as much as you did. Right. Um, And creatively, he often put it in the hands of others more than you have relinquished those those duties. So I'm curious as to if there's ever a Jekyll and Hyde battle between the two sides of entrepreneur and artist. No. <laughs> they go the, hand in hand. The, the entrepreneur producer is really tough. You know, you, there's, <laughs> you know, I, I'm lucky. You said something early on, which I'm, I'm aware of, and I'm very uh, fortunate to be in a position where even though there's a certain amount of ageism in this business, and I've had friends who have gone on to make huge movies and they no longer make huge movies. And I mean, I've, I've, I've touched mainstream Hollywood so many times in my life, usually indirectly, not directly. And on a positive side, by keeping in, in, into this mode and, and knowing kind of what my, my world is and what I should spend and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I've, 
I mean, I can keep moving, making movies till I'm just a head in a jar, you know, marching <laughs> commands, which I plan to be one day. So, and you've made movies about, yeah. Yes, I made that too. That's true. But one of my favorite movies, Head of the Family, all right, of, of yeah. the movies I've made. Yeah. Anyway, so luckily, nothing really has changed. I mean, the pace is now greater, thank God, because we survived some really terrible years when all the video stores closed, which was for decades kind of our bread and butter. I mean, there were some years when we were the number one independent supplier to Blockbuster in Hollywood, and we won awards like the most successful direct-to-video movie of the year for whatever that's worth. Now it sounds like an arcane thing, but so, you know, as years got more difficult, less movies were made. I mean, there were some years, even back on 35, we made 20, 25 movies in a year, which, you know, 35 millimeters, a whole different story than yeah. how quickly and efficiently we can work today. And there were some years where God knows only four movies were, were made, which was to me like not doing anything, you know, because we just couldn't afford to do more. So I'm fortunate in that way that this is my shop and, we're, and now things are going really well and streaming's amazing. And we have all these new uh, adjuncts that we're involved in. Um, but I've never really felt like, okay, if I had more days and more money, I can make a better movie. I kind of know what I'm doing and what my place is. I know what I can afford to spend. And, you know, there's a little margin for error. I mean, if we go an extra day, it's not the end of the world. And I've worked with some directors who push that envelope a lot, like Stuart Gordon, for sure, was, yeah. was a sweetheart. And I, I again, I'm so bummed he's gone way before his time. That's you know, Stuart, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Oh, he's such a sweet man and such a talent. But he could um, be intractable. Yeah, definitely. I saw that and, side of him. Yeah. yeah, so that's, you know, I can think of, I mean, there are movies over the years that had problems because of either the director or or a cast member who went mad, like Klaus Kinski. I made a movie called Crawl Space. Klaus Kinski, yes. definitely not an with easy David Schmoller, right? Yes, with yeah. David Schmoller. So you know, but I overall there's there's a, a matrix, a plan, and it starts with other than the concept, which was critical in the title. It starts with all right, this is our budget. You know, we've written. You know, to hopefully these movies are more character driven because we can't afford all these absurd, in my opinion, endlessly stupid special effects, especially the CGI world. I mean, you know, I don't want to put down other movies because there's some great Marvel movies that have been made that I loved. I loved the first Iron Man. I love Doctor Strange. But when you go to these things and for two hours and 15 minutes, they just bang you on the head with endless explosions and multiverses and pyrotechnics. And I fell in love with Marvel comics because they were so human. You know, when, when the first Spider-Man came out, it was not just Spider-Man, you know, fighting intergalactic villains. It was his trials and tribulations at home and Auntie May, and there was a human side. And he had a girlfriend and same thing with Fantastic Four. I mean, it's that, that that's what turned me on to the Marvel comics as opposed to the DC comics of that era, which were sort of more heartless and soulless. And, you know, they, 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 they did their thing, but, you know, there was a, humanity in the early Marvel comics. So, you know, we can't afford the big stuff anyway. So, we have, you know, <laughs> so you work within your parameters. Yeah. Yeah. So I've done that. And for better, for worse, here we are. <laughs> you know? yeah. Well, you've gone through so many levels of boom and bust personally and professionally. Um, perhaps the earliest it, during the beginning of, of your career as a director, there was Parasite, a huge 3D movie that was a huge success, but by the time you followed it up with Metal Storm, uh, 3D was not so popular. That's true. I was kind of, well, I can't say I was early on because there were movies 20 years before that were made in 3D, but 
I kind of was at the beginning of a little brief 3D trend, which then went dormant, as we know, for 30 odd years. And then what, you know, now nothing's more, there's no 3D. It's like, you know, I, I don't like, I like 3D if it's used as a gimmick. You know, let me have things poking out at me. And I mean, that to me is fun. Yeah. You know, what, I don't know how many years ago, 10, 8, 9, 7, big movies for a while were made in 3D. You had to put the big glasses on. And, you know, what they exploited or, or, or tried to make work was, you know, the sense of depth. It wasn't so much the poking right. out and fun. It was just the depth. But I think that after a while, that your, your brain doesn't even see that anymore. You're just watching a movie with big, stupid glasses on that are sludgy yeah. or dirty or whatever. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But my movies, those two that I, well, I made a third that, only a handful of people saw 3D, but those two movies, in in different ways, both did really well. I mean, Parasite did really well for a small movie. Afco Embassy. I became friendly with Bob Ramey over there. I mean, you share some. I was history. working there uh, right before that came out, doing specialized publicity in the genre. Right, wow. and, and weren't yeah. you involved? This is a distant memory with the fog carpenters film. I did the making of the fog and I did public specialized publicity. That was my first movie job. Wow. There yeah. you go. Awesome. Yeah. So yeah, so that worked worked really well. But what happened with Metal Storm is Metal Storm is partially responsible for the funding that it took for me to explode for a while with Empire. Empire was due to two success stories all within the same year or so. Metal Storm, I'll tell you why, and Ghoulies. So Metal Storm, because I was halfway through shooting this thing, I directed it as I directed Parasite. Right. And I become friendly with Ramey and I get a call. Now this is, you know, people can't understand what it was like not to have a cell phone, not <laughs> to have any access to any information. It's just, you had to figure it out. Or, or And when you were shooting back in those days, you, you needed to be in touch. There was always a production office or a line. If you're shooting in a sand quarry, which is where we were shooting for Metal Storm, you would have a phone at some office that was attached to the sand quarry. You'd have to have a production person there in case there was an urgent call or an actor was late. They would drive or run to you on set because here I am directing this 3D movie uh, and say, hey, so-and-so and such-and-such. -and -such. I mean, it was, if you had to talk to someone, then you had to go to the freaking thing and everyone waited. Anyway, today it's a world of convenience, but a call came through two weeks into whatever this was, a four-week shoot, and it was from Bob Ramey. It was Bob himself, who was at that time running Universal. He went from AFCO wow. to Universal. Yeah, I went with him. Yeah. Okay. And Bob calls and he goes, Charlie, we've equipped, uh, I don't know, however many, several thousand screens with the, the, the screens for Jaws 3D. And it was very expensive. And if your movies, yeah, I'm paraphrasing, if your movie is halfway decent, I'd love <laughs> to pick it up because then we can right away go into all these screens that we've equipped for 3D right after Jaws 3D and play your movie. And I hear it's like kind of a Mad Max. And I go, yeah. He said, well, I said, but it's, he said, I need to know right away because of the timing and the thing and the theaters. And I said, well, I'm just two weeks into the shoot. He said, well, put something together. You know, I, let me see something because, you know, we, we had a good experience with Parasite and I, I, I appreciate the fact you're directing this thing. So of course, then I had to sit with my editor who, again, this is, you know, mag and 35 and bins right. and tape and he's you know he's got maybe a week assembled and i basically said you got to spend the weekend pull what you can and you know so my focus was not just directing which was not an easy movie at all metal storm but i had to kind of prepare this promo reel or this reel 10 minute reel so got it over to ramey on monday because he really wanted to see it on monday and sure enough later that day i get a call 
I'm on set. I'm in the freaking San Quarry again. It's Bob Ramey because, you know, I wanted to get that call. So I rush over to this thing. He says, Charlie, I, I think the movie looks really fun. I'd like to make you an offer. We're only interested in domestic, North America, U.S. and Canada. How does $2.8 million sound? Uh, the movie cost 800 grand. That was my budget. That sounds good. So I pretended to take a moment, which probably sounded <laughs> really fake, but I did. And I, we made a deal. So, so they, and, and then there was a foreign distributor who I'd never saw any money from. That's another story who had foreign, but that's how Metal Storm got in the hands of Universal. Now, whether they made money or not, I have no idea, but people saw the movie. I mean, to this day, people talk about Metal Storm and Ball and the arm and the blood. And so, yeah. Well, I bring that up as an example of the boom and bust, though. You, you're riding high with 3D, 3D goes yeah. out of fashion. Yeah. Um, you have been able to rise multiple times like a phoenix in ways that many other people in this industry have not right. because of there's an adaptability and an and a willingness to try something new and go new places that i yeah. think defines who you are as an entrepreneur as well as uh, as a filmmaker well plus what else am i going to do <laughs> I mean, that's, that's all i know uh, luckily even through thin there's been thick but there's been a lot of thin and there were, there were a couple of stretches where I literally sold everything I had because I had for a while an, an insane uh, mid collection of comic books. I had tons of art from original art from Kirby and Ditko and all that went. And there were other moments in my life where I had to kind of just to keep alive. But the only thing I never sold, and I was tempted a few times, was my library or even some of the movies from my library because that ultimately, this is nothing new in show business, but for me, it saved my butt. Because other than a handful of movies that I made during the Empire years that went to eventually MGM, and I'm not even sure where they are right now, I own all my negatives. So when, when video went bust, which was the toughest stretch, because that's when the, the connection to the fans and, you know, the way we connect with the way people saw our movies, my movies, was at your local video store for the most part. When that ended, um, the only thing I could think of doing, this is before streaming existed, was to go on the road and, and do a tour and and connect with fans. And, and I did that. And that was grueling. I mean, there were a couple of months I did 20 cities. And, you wow. know, we had anywhere from 300 to 900 people per venue. Sometimes there were theaters. Sometimes there were comedy clubs. I always brought celebrities from the horror business. Some of them included, um, you know, Jesus, like people like Bill Mosley and William Shatner did a couple stops at the wow. time. Wow. Right? My uh, son, Alex, with the calling, they were hot. So he came sometimes and played. And sometimes, you know, less less notable uh, horror, um, you know. Luminaries. Luminaries, <laughs> yeah. But nonetheless, we, we went to these shows and it was a lost leader. Never really made any money, even though we sold a lot of merch because traveling, keeping a small group on the I mean, we, this was not just me on a stage. We had guillotines and smoke machines and coffins and we, we lugged around tons of merch because that's how I funded the thing. Cause I've always been very involved in the, the toy and merch side of the business. Um, but what was great about it uh, is during those, I don't know, four or five years, maybe I did a few hundred cities. So I kind of one-on-one -on -one talked to everyone because after my show, which was always a couple hours, I would say, Hey, okay, everyone. Now, as you can see, we have a ton of merch. I'm happy to meet you all and I'll sign whatever you want, no charge. So then there was always another two hours where I would sit at a table and there'd be a, the audience would all want to buy something, whether it's a tape or a thing or, 
an action figure. And so I would sit there and sign stuff. But in that, I would have a conversation with over the years, 20,000 people, you know, sometimes it was just a little brief moment where they say, and one of the the most endearing reoccurring stories, which, you know, as a father, I think, well, that's pretty weird. But the story would go, oh, my God, I such memories. I had my mom, I begged her to let me see Puppet Master and she did. And I'll never forget sitting with my, or my dad or my brother or my grandma. And I usually invariably ask, you know, well, well how old are you? Oh, I was six or I was seven, which is way <laughs> too young to Wait. see the leech woman and boobies or whatever the hell. <laughs> but, you know, people have these memories, but more instructive was sort of the feedback I got you know, why they rented the movie, what was appealing, what they liked most about the movie. So I got all that feedback for years from literally the mouths of all the fans. The only way you can really get direct reaction from the people who you are are trying to reach. Right, right, right. So more in the world of boom and bust, you actually bought Dino Cita. Yes, I did. You bought a studio in Rome. Yeah. So tell me what led to that and its ultimate uh, crash. Yes, well, yes, crash and burn. I made that movie, and every yeah. one of these stories has that as a bookend, um, or not a bookend. And, and so, so we were doing really well with Empire in the early to mid '80s. Uh, it was boom time for sure. I had a huge deal with Vestron Video, which is long gone, but for those of us who've been around, yeah, um, you know, they were the eminent uh, direct-to-video player in the early, mid to late 80s. And they, we had a big deal with them. I mean, it was touted in Variety. That was a great headline, you know, that we were the front page headline of Variety. Uh, Vestron and Empire closed $50 million deal. Well, it wasn't 50 million, but it was some many millions, you know, I don't, I don't yeah. remember. Because, you know, the more movies I made, the more they paid, the bigger the number uh, got. But it was a lot of money. And at that time, um, you know, because I've been back and forth to Italy forever. I mean, it's my home. The dollar was very, very strong. So, so there was a lot of purchasing power. And I got wind that there was a couple of um, people that I had known who wanted to help with the production in Rome and I should come to Rome and shoot a movie. And of course, that's like a dream. Any excuse for me to come to Rome would be great. So I didn't go crazy, but I said, okay, let's shoot this movie. It was Danny Bilson, Paul DeMeo wrote it. It was called Zone Troopers with Tim Thomerson and Art LaFleur. Um, I just All of whom had done Trancers. We had already done Trancers. Which was a Um, great movie too. Well, thank you. Yeah. And, And so... This sounded good, and but you know it's a World War II movie with an alien spaceship, so you can't shoot that here in LA or anywhere in the states. And so Italy made sense, and we went there, and it was a terrific experience. It was uh, we got amazing production value, met some wonderful artists, a great art director named Giovanni Natalucci, and suddenly it's like wow, shooting in Italy is awesome and <laughs> and affordable. And then fortuitously around the same time, I had met Dino De Laurentiis several times just in passing but he took a shine to me because i don't look italian at all but i speak it fluently i speak it actually better than english or at least <laughs> this way so we would have these conversations and we'd have this kind of nice rapport and at the time i was dealing with the nefarious credit leonese bank which was the bank of many other independents and eventually the whole thing went bust and they were um dino de Laurentiis pretty much started the pre-sale model where you would go to a foreign market, pre-sell your movie to various territories, take the paper to the bank, 
the bank would discount it, give you money, you go make your movie. And that worked for a while. So I was introduced to the, the main guy at the bank, became friendly with him. They gave us a line of credit. And he said, hey, I know you know Dino, and I know you just shot a movie in Italy. Between us, his studio, the Dino Cheetah Studios, probably for sale, you know, if you make the right finagle deal, because everything was a finagle, you know. Dino <laughs> didn't own it, but he kind of did own it. The bank, it, it was all double talk, but I'm, you know, I speak the language. So I go, really? <laughs> yes. And as a matter of fact, if you do the right deal with Dino, we'll fund it. Because obviously they're sitting with this asset is probably the behind the scenes story. Right. So I'll never forget, I went with um, my my former wife, Debbie Dion, was very involved with uh, writing and finding writers and working with my dad, also a huge part of the empire years, and early full moon years. We went to Dino's house. He invited us to his house here in L.A. This is when he had, um, I forget what it was called, his production company right here on Wilshire, a beautiful marble building. And he was, you know, L.A. based. And DLG, yeah. Yeah, DLG. There you go. Yeah. And anyway, we drive up Doheny to this palatial, fantastic house he was renting. And, and anyway, we're there. And I, and I saw Martha, his, his wife. Um who was very sweet. And it was just literally, it was like probably a 25,000 square foot house. So with Dino, who's very diminutive, Martha, me and my, my former wife, Debbie, and one sort of assistant in the kitchen, the kitchen was gargantuan as well. So Dino is very proud of the fact that he's going to make pasta for dinner, you know, some sort of a pen or whatever. And I thought that's freaking awesome. I mean, Dino, you know, he was, I don't know how old he was at that time, but whatever it was, he was older. And we went in the kitchen and it turned out the gal there was his sort of, is it called a sous chef? The one yeah. who prepped everything. Yeah. So she had it all prepped, the thing and it all cut up. But sure enough, he put on a thing and he whipped this pot. It was fucking awesome pasta. And we sat down to dinner and then Dino, this is, <laughs> this reminds me of, scene, of, of a scene in an old Bond movie, I think Goldfinger, which is so not appropriate today anymore, where Bond is with, Blowhard, or I forget, whatever it is. No, no, he's with a, a his CIA agent friend, and he's with a real pretty girl. And he looks at the girl, and he and he goes, something. He doesn't say get lost. He says go away. Men talk, and he slaps her on the butt, <laughs> oh, and she geez. walks away. Men talk, right? Yeah. Like, so not this century. Anyway, so Dito dismissed Martha and and Debbie, and he wanted to have a private uh, discussion. And at the end of the discussion, I agreed to a price. He said, don't worry, I know Credit Leonese really likes you and they'll fund it. And three weeks later, I'm in Amsterdam, where I signed paperwork and I literally got the keys to Dino Chita, which for those of you who are not familiar, so when, when Dino built this 100 acre studio back in the early 60s, it was, it had the largest soundstage other than I think somewhere in England, I forget the name of the studio there. It was- uh, EMI Street. Probably. Yeah. Um, movies were shot there like the Bible and Barbarella. I mean, it was a fantastic facility. And then because of labor issues, I'm not sure how Dino got into trouble, some kind of trouble. I had to leave the country, left the thing, and it sat fallow for many years. So it was talk about a fixer-upper. It was just that. But the bones were there, five magnificent sound stages, a, 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 an administration building that had, I think, 120 offices. And of course, I got to be in Dino's ex office, which is also <laughs> palatial. And I got to sit behind his desk. You know, he's famous for having these desks that are indescribably big. 
I mean, yes. he was sort of a shorter guy. Um, oh, he was tiny. Yeah. Yeah. But when he would stand up, you know, he was on some pedestal. So he's a little taller <laughs> and it was built in a way where the, the guest was on a chair that was lower. So you never felt that Dino was small until he, if he came over and gave you a hug, you realize the guy's tiny. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, we, I suddenly, we, Empire owned uh, this incredible studio. And so during that period of time, you were still, I, I'm, I'm curious about the working with Stuart because I've worked with him on Masters of Horror and just right. loved him as a friend and what an amazing artist, but he's one of the people you worked with multiple times with yeah. Robot Jocks and Castle Freak and, you know, yeah. that period of, yeah. of his career. So tell me about what started with Reanimator and your work with Stuart. Well, it, it sort of came... Uh, over to me sort of through my dad because remember my dad was a huge part of empire in the early years of full moon um you know he used to call it uh, reverse nepotism because you know he worked for me for all those years and you know i couldn't have asked for a more wonderful sweet uh, father who also taught me everything i knew i mean i grew up on a movie set and he produced and directed those films so he was like my right arm in so many ways and I'm not exactly sure, maybe it's through a writer friend of my father's. Um, Stuart came into the fold with Brian Usna, who was his producing partner. And they had they wanted to do Reanimator. And, you know, it, it, my dad was very high on Stuart. I guess he read material. He was aware of Stuart's background with the organic theater in Chicago. I mean, Stuart is, you know, to me, if you have the, a, a theatrical background, a theater background, if you know how to talk to actors, if you have that, you're miles ahead of the guy who technically is proficient and may know how to shoot this and shoot that and can't talk to an actor and can't open his or her mouth. So, you know, Stewie had all those qualifications and it was a clever sort of approach to a Lovecraft piece. And, you know, I was, we were flying high. So this was like, you know, 900 miles an hour time and we we're shooting several other movies at the same time. So I said, great, let's, let's, let's make Reanimator. And that began the relationship. Now there's a whole sidebar with Reanimator and, the material didn't look good and that's a separate story but getting friendly with Stuart and 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 knowing you know what a talent he is and Reanimator was a was a success not theatrically because we released it theatrically it was a bomb like most of these movies but it had a life of its own we did amazing foreign sales it was time to make a multi-pick pack with Stuart Gordon <laughs> yeah. so right away we did a deal for From Beyond which he really wanted to make another Lovecraft piece also with Barbara Grant and, and, and Jeffrey Combs and then I tried in my typical sort of let's not waste a moment of time. I, I knew that at the time we were going to prep uh, from beyond in Italy at our studio, at my big studio, we were finishing a movie called Troll. And we had built the interior of a, you know, I don't want to say a haunted house, but, a, you know, a turn of the last century sort of wood staircase, cool looking house that was on one of the sound stages. So I said to Stuart, you know, let's, you know, we're going to bring you guys to Italy. It's a whole thing. Can we make a quickie before from beyond just a quickie, something real simple. And, you know, I never, never, ever proposed anything like I was proposing to Stuart without having the art in the title. Never. It's not like, here's the rough idea. So I said, can we make this movie? And it was dolls. And I had a great right. poster of the creepy doll holding its own eyes. Uh, written by Ed Naha, who'd also later on, written, yeah, 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 of course, he'd written Troll as well, right? Yes, and then yeah. Castle Freak, and there's a whole history yeah. there. Anyway, so Dolls actually became bigger than life because 
I always wanted to make this is before Puppet Master. I always wanted to make a movie with inanimate dolls coming to life. And I'm kind of in that frame of mind. And you know, I so I called every favor, all the effects guys who I knew would who would, you know, I knew would make this thing special. And first and foremost, I talked to Dave Allen, who was my stop motion animation guy since yeah. the laser blast days, and got Dave on board. And the, this quickie turned out to be not such a quickie. And Stuart did an amazing job. And I still think it's one of the better movies that I've ever been involved with. And then they never left. You know, people went to Italy, for, I thought, for a month or two. They were there for a year. So then Stuart went right on to uh, From Beyond, and which also turned out very well. But I was really proud of Dolls, which, again, started as, like all of them, just a piece of art. So... What led to the eventual closing of uh, Full Moon Studios there? Um, like everything else, lack of funds is what yeah. <laughs> ended it. No, what happened was it's a bunch of stuff. It was, first and foremost, the plan to make multiple movies in Italy, my own movies, not renting the studio out to other third parties, which is silly because if you have a freaking 100-acre studio, you really need to work it as a, as, as a location where other people come in and, okay, but no, my whole idea was I'm going to make movies here. And there were, a, there was a good stretch where we had a movie on three of the five sound stages going at the same time, Crawl Space, Schmoller, Klaus Kinski and Troll and blah, blah, blah. So that was a mistake now that I can look back, but what, what hurt the most in the beginning was the abrupt change of the dollar to the lira. Lira was the currency of the time now all of Europe is the, is the Euro. So imagine if a dollar could buy you, I'm trying to think of the best way to think of it. If a dollar could buy you a gallon of gas, suddenly 11, 12 months later, it was $2. It was not 5%, it was like a lot more. You know, you could eat a reasonable meal in Rome for $10 when we started. Now that same exact meal cost $22, $24. So the cost of everything became more expensive. Um, we also found that since all these movies were special effects driven that, and the special effects guys, as much as I love all of them, and I've worked with probably all of them, they're notoriously last minute. So we spent one year, I think we spent $400,000 just air freighting stuff across the ocean, right? Because wow. the effect was ready. We shot in three days. You can't put it on a boat and take your time and spend no money. So we were like spending insane amounts of money shipping stuff, never shipped it back. God knows where all the stuff is. So it was a combination of weak dollar, basically realizing that we should now be shooting movies back in LA, not, not yeah. in Rome, Italy. And at that same time, um, the, the bank line of credit was bigger because I bought a studio with almost $20 million, even though it was credit nonetheless. And then you know the, the video business wasn't great and Credit Leonese, which was the, the financing bank, you know, wanted empire to also distribute other movies to help them out. Cause you know, they would have a producer, producer couldn't find distribution. I was sort of being sort of told by the bank what they wanted and what they expected. And suddenly there were other movies that I had nothing to do with, uh, you know, being run through the empire distribution network. Cause we did have theatrical. Those deals were all theatrical for the most part. You know, my big $50 million deal with, uh, Vestron required PNA, as you know, you had to spend a million, two million, you had to run prints all over the country. This theoretically enhanced the video value. And if you spent the right amount of PNA dollars, you got the big ass advance from the video distributor. That was the model pretty much all the way through the 80s. So we never, ever once made a dime theatrically. We were just lucky to recover wow. the money. 
you know, and sometimes we lost money because no one showed up to these things. So, but but the ones where we we recovered the money allowed us to then get the full advance from the Sylvestron video, and that made this whole thing a profitable venture. So all these things combined, we're like, okay, we can't do this anymore, and and we, we the Empire Studio days ended. And you know, it's funny how I that things you I don't regret anything. I mean, this is where things were at. Here I am, as you say, I just keep reinventing. So I'm happy that the energy is there. But when I look back as a collector, because I'm a completely freaky collector, there was one warehouse chock full of costumes and props, mm -hmm. Barbarella, the Bible, wow. other movies I'm forgetting, just chock full. And I own the place. You know, this was not like, oh, you, you bought the studio, but you can't take Jane Fonda's whatever. <laughs> I could have taken a third of that stuff and put it somewhere else and slowly sold it on eBay or something because yeah. it was just Generated dark options. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, well, c'est la vie. But um, yeah, that ended. But for three or so glorious years, uh, Empire owned this magnificent studio. And there's no difference for those few years, uh, I'm sure that the way that anyone felt who ran, briefly ran a studio back in the heyday of Hollywood. I mean, I sat in this huge building. We had about a hundred employees. I looked out at these sound stages, you know, it was fantastic. Well, not only that, you bought yourself a castle. I, yes, I did. yes. Why not, right? <laughs> you were feeling very baronial, I guess. Yeah, yes, true. So what brought you back home? The, the, uh, the value of the euro? Well, no, it was a certain point where it wasn't working out. And Credit Linnaeus was putting pressure on us to get out of there because they wanted to get rid of that asset, which even though technically I owned it, they controlled it. They were the puppet master of all of that. So, you know, that's fine. And it made sense also because you know, we couldn't make movies cost efficiently there. It was a bummer. I'm not going to you know, pretend it wasn't sad to leave a place. I mean, we were so caught up in this. We even created a, a walkway from kind of where the sound stages were to the administration building, which was by the bar, the bar as in the Italian style bar with cappuccino, not that people got drunk, although you could buy booze there, I guess. Yeah. Um, and this walkway, we did sort of a Chinese ground, ground and Chinese handprints and footprints. Wow. So when we had our bigger celebrities come, they would, we'd have a little ceremony. I mean, you know, we were building up something special, but that ended about three years into the run and then back in LA. And that began maybe barely a year of the demise of empire where finally the bank through an emissary came to me and said, look, you know, you're doing a good job. I know things are difficult. Times have changed. Here's what we offer. You leave Empire, you give everything to us, including the 30 odd movies we made during that period, which are the only 30 movies I don't own other than Metal Storm, strangely enough. Um, in return, we'll let you keep some of the properties you're attached to. And we will um, I think what the technical word is basically you don't you don't owe any money anymore because I was personally on the line for the for the credit line which was like tens of like a gazillion dollars. Yikes. So they they figured okay let's get rid of Charlie we have the ad, the movies we'll find another way to finagle this whole thing and I agreed I, I wasn't in a position to go no I love all that debt so fuck you I, I couldn't <laughs> do that um, yeah. and literally within ninety days of Empire ending. It didn't, some people thought, oh, you went bankrupt. No, I've never been bankrupt in my life. I've gotten really thin and really, you know, in trouble with money because of, you know, again, lack of funds, but I never went bankrupt. But within 90 days of selling Empire, because I officially did sell it, I started Full Moon and I made Puppet Master and I made a deal at 
paramount and that began that whole era. Well, there was a period in between there where the horror stuff was performing less well and you started to make softcore R-rated sex yes. films. Yeah. You detail that very, very well in the book and <laughs> tell me about, you were uncomfortable with that. Not really, but you know, if you look at the library at some point, because I've numbered everything now, Foxtrot is number zero. So if you look at the, <laughs> you know, I think by the end of 2023, if all goes well, we'll hit number 400, movie wow. number four. I think, cause wow. we're on kind of on track. So if somebody just takes a look at this and studies it, they'll see that every time money ran scarce and things were kind of crappy, a bunch of sexy movies were made because they're less expensive. They're reliably, you know, profitable, you know, marginally profitable. And the ones we made with few exceptions were actually kind of clever because they were always sci-fi fantasy themed, you know, so right. Femalian, you know, a chick comes right. to earth and is interested in banging Earth man and Earth women, uh, you know, the exotic house of wax, the erotic time machine, virtual encounters. So these did really well, especially those I'm mentioning right now, because that was towards the tail end of the video rental days. So they all did better than my more well-known, you know, Puppet Master 7, okay, but Familian, better. <laughs> better in terms of rental terms at the for direct-to-video. Well, the term franchise was something that is relatively recent uh, coinage. You were franchising way before that became popular. Puppet Master, uh, any number of your, your titles, Evil Bong. Uh, <laughs> there are multiples of them. And that kind of kept Full Moon going for much of its life, right? Tell yeah. me about that. Well, we just released, I'm not sure when this will come out, but... The It'll sure. still be relatively recent. We just released our ninth Evil Bond movie. So I made the first one 16 years ago with Tommy Chong. And, you know, they're they're obviously less expensive to make. I have a lot of fun. I mean, I directed all nine of them. And I had fun doing them because they could be shot in literally four or five days. I know it sounds crazy, but I can do that. And, you know, in many cases, there, there are these characters that we've pulled through, you know, 16 years of making these things so fans are familiar with them and of course the evil bong hasn't changed it's still the same freaking evil bong it's on my shelf at home which is a great way to park it you know a talent <laughs> you just pull <laughs> off the shelf a little bit of lube and boom it's the evil bong again <laughs> um so yeah th those are fun to make and there's a following i mean you know it's a weed centric film um there's no other franchise like it it's really weird that there's no other long lived so i mean yes there's you know, Cheech and Chong movies, you know, there's a couple of those and a couple of these, but, you know, we've made nine of them, you know, and, and the one that we just released literally a few days ago is doing super well. I mean, super well relative to views and streams and, you know, in our world, our little tiny empire world. Right, yeah. Well, I, I love the fact that you're still, you still have the enthusiasm that you want to keep directing movies and not do what Corman did, which was step aside and just run his empire. I know why he did that. I mean, Roger and I have been pretty close. We did a, you know, I don't know how many, maybe seven, eight years ago. I thought, Roger, let's get together with some cameras and just sit down and talk about our lives. And it's called, you know, um, Kings of Cult, which, of course, is a very subtle, uh, <laughs> humble title. But yeah. it was really great. And, it, and that kind of was the precursor of what I'm doing now with my podcast, Vidcast, because, you know, whether it's Carpenter or, or 
John Logan was in here a few days ago, the wonderful wow. writer. And yeah. he and I go back years and, you know, he wrote Gladiator and, you know, he, he, uh, Penny Dreadful. Penny Dreadful is like one of the best shows ever. Yeah. And, and he also, he says, he says he owes a lot to movies that he grew up, he didn't grow up with movies that he loved, like subspecies movies that I've made. Cause those movies are sprinkled in there. I always kid him. I go, I see yeah. a little bit of subspecies and a little bit of master. <laughs> and we met cause he's a fan and he wanted to get some replicas this years ago. So sitting with uh, John and talking about his new show, which comes out, I think, in August on Peacock, it's a uh, slasher movie for uh, Blumhouse. And it's a very wow. clever, clever, it's called Them Slash They. And I don't want to spoil it because I kind of know what it's about, but it sounds amazing. But, you know, he's done two Bond movies and, you know, Scorsese's Aviator. And you know, he's yeah. been in that end of the yeah. business. And this show, the one that he just directed for Blumhouse, is the first movie he's written and directed. So the Corman thing started this because I thought it was fun to, and we, you know, we really did it the right way. We had three or four cameras, I forget which, it was well lit, we talked, and that's what I'm doing now with uh, this freak show, <laughs> podcast vidcast. So, so it starts tomorrow, and people can listen to it, because they can just go to wherever they listen to their podcast. But we also, I think, shot it really well. And you've got to be on it. You got to come on board because what we do again, because to me, it's a very visual medium is I have this incredibly talented graphic artist. His name is Ryan Brookhart. He's been with me since the early nineties. So we create a really cool mural. Again, we shoot this against a green screen. So we right. can put anything we want in there. So we create a really cool mural uh, germane to whoever the artist is, you know, so Carpenter yeah. wasn't so difficult. You had the fog yeah. and Halloween and that, and it wouldn't be easy, difficult with you because we know a lot of cool <laughs> movies. And I mean, the stand, I watched that some years ago and I wouldn't miss an episode. And uh, people don't realize you couldn't watch them at will when you wanted. You had to be there. Yep. And, and there was no even, what, what was it called that we used to be able to record these shows? That didn't exist. Oh, uh, there was a VCR then. That was 94. Yeah, but it was a VCR. Well, not so. Yeah, it wasn't no, digital. No DVD. It wasn't. It, yeah. Yeah. But I love watching those, and, and Thank you. that was very well done. But. Well, I'd be glad to. And, you know, Postmortem started as a TV show for FearNet, so I did the same sort of thing. Oh, I, I didn't know that. Yeah, oh, okay. I had on, uh, you know, Carpenter and Wes Craven and uh, and Corman and all these people. Okay. Those are available on uh, mickgarrisinterviews.com. Awesome. Yeah. I, I, didn't, I didn't know that. That's, you know, yeah. you and I started in your, in your own bubble so long that I'm yeah. oblivious to so many things. Because... To me, the greatest luxury is having a little time to do something that I enjoy now. I mean, not that I'm a slave to what I do, but I kind of am. So, you know, yeah. just to be able to listen to a podcast or see a movie or find out that you did this and then go, oh, my God, boop, 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 you just push some yeah. buttons and, and yeah. there it is. So, yeah, that's yeah, kind of I what started I do. out doing. I started out doing interviews on the Z channel way back when. The Z channel. Yeah. So that is incredible. Carpenter and Toby Hooper and Steven Spielberg and all kinds of Christopher wow. Lee was on it. You know, we yeah, did, I, I think I destroyed his career career. I put him in a movie and he talks about <laughs> it being probably the worst movie ever made. So. Oh dear. Oh dear. That's okay. Well, speaking of which, of all of the hundreds of productions you've been involved with, which are the ones that give you the most pride? You know. There are quite a few, actually, but if I had to list maybe the top five. <laughs> well, let's say top five then. Okay, so probably up there would be uh, the first maybe three Puppet Master movies. Well, Puppet Master, but the first one and the third one. Um, I'm really proud of Subspecies, which was not easy to make with the wonderful Ted Nicolau. We made, we're about to shoot the fifth Subspecies, finally. Wow. 
not in Romania and Serbia <laughs> because of you know war yeah. and all the rest of it. Um, probably the, the ones I've directed, Trancers, which was just a lot of fun, and Trancers too. They both uh, near and dear because it was so so much fun being on that set with because dry um, hair is for squids. Dry hair is for squids. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly. Um, I'm a squid. My hair is very dry. So, <laughs> you know, but nonetheless. But probably up there, possibly the movie that most represents kind of what I enjoy in movies I've conjured up is a movie called Head of the Family, because oh, it's, yeah. it's got it all. You know, it's a dark comedy. It's got a twisted. It's, I think, very well performed. Uh, it just works. And I made another movie with some of the same actors called Hideous, which I shot at my studio in Romania because I built a studio in Romania in the 90s. Right. So um, Castell, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I just want to tell everybody out there that if they are interested at all, they've got to read Confessions of a Puppet Master. It, it's a very fast read. It's so entertaining. And it, you do bear yourself. It is indeed confessional. <laughs> yeah, you know, I don't have that much to confess, really. You know, I, I, I never took advantage of, you know, like jumping on a bunch of actresses. It wasn't my thing. I'm very romantic, so I've had a few wonderful long-term relationships. So luckily my past doesn't haunt me that way. Um, but yeah, no, there, there's, there were extremely difficult times that I, I lived through. Um, and you just hold on, you know, if you're, if you're passionate and you get joy from what you do, you know, people always ask for, people ask for advice. And I go, look, if you can just do what you love, if you can try to make a living at what you love, you know, it's, you can get through some real hard times. And yeah, there were, if you, well, you read the book, so you know. Yeah. I mean, I went to the slammer for a weekend. I mean, you know, these are not easy times. And then there were amazing times, studio in Italy, castles, you know, <laughs> up and down and up and down. And now luckily it's, things are really good. And they're good because I was the second guy out there to start a streaming service. This is six months after Netflix. I mean, Netflix, not yeah. that long ago, was the company you got DVDs from in the mail. Yeah. Think of that. And now you're an Amazon channel, the Amazon. Yeah. Full Moon well, we have our own yeah. app, which is fullmoonfeatures.com. See, I should promote my shit, which I never do. Ah. Fullmoonfeatures.com. It's, yeah. it's our app and pretty much the same material, uh, a little less because we can put up some things we can't put up on Amazon because Amazon's a little more mainstream. But you can you know, also subscribe to our channel on Amazon, which is very wonderful that we got in there now almost yeah. eight years ago. So yeah, streaming. And, and interestingly enough, a, a huge part of the business is action figures, replicas, toys. That is, those kept us alive during some very lean years. So that's something that, you know, and now we have a nostalgia factor, of course. So it's, yeah. it's even more amazing that people who grew up with Puppet Master, we're, we're about to do a blind box series. And it's just, it, it's all tied to the same, I think, love of the genre, no matter how you look at it. Well, it's also about creative resilience. You know how to roll with the punches and not just roll over and die, but resurrect. And that's such an important thing about <laughs> such, such an evolving industry. Yes, well. and I know for a fact that if I stop, I will become extremely old very quickly, punched <laughs> over, and I'll just kind of wobble back to Italy and sit on a farm because it's this energy and it's doing what we're doing that keeps us, you know, I think being young at heart is a big part of it, obviously. 
Absolutely. And you and I are only about three weeks apart. Uh, yeah, but you're older than me. By three weeks, yeah. <laughs> Call me grandpa. No, I'm just being silly. But yeah, <laughs> 1951, you know, let people figure out how old we are. They have to do the math. Yeah, 1951, well, there you go. man. There, Great there's, there's some figuring. Well, Charlie Band, thank you so much for joining us on the slab here on Postmortem. And yeah, I look forward to joining you on yours. That's going to happen. You're going to get an invitation soon because we're, we're uh, it's, it's fun. You know, it's, it, I've, I didn't think I'd ever want to do it. And I, I think of it more of a vidcast than a podcast, but you know, it's, it's actually, I'm enjoying it. And um, I'd love to have you as part yeah. of it. Uh, thank you. We're in our sixth year and it's only because I have fun doing it. I'm in my fourth day. <laughs> Congratulations <laughs> and good luck. See you Sorry. later. Thanks. Thank Thanks you. Ciao. Thank you for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every Wednesday and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Thank you for listening to the Dread Podcast Network.